Well, thanks again for being at Grace. Uh, we are in a series, A Life of Unshakable Joy, and it's really just a series through the book of Philippians, and we're in chapter 2. Topic today is going to be unity and how to make that happen. Kind of an interesting topic for us this week. I know our, our country's been shocked by what's happened in Dallas and, and other places, and, and as we kind of process through that, we realize that there's a lot of disunity in our country. Yeah. Just several months ago, I, uh, I contacted our police department and wanted to speak to the chief to basically find out if there was anything uh, that we could do as a church to kind of help them and make them feel appreciated. And uh, when I got there, it was a, I, I met with a man who, this was before Chief Bliss took, uh, took the position, and I was meeting with a, a guy who was the acting chief of police. And I, and I had known him from years before, although we hadn't had conversation in several years. And as we're talking, and again, I'm only there just to say, hey, how can we help? The, the conversation is just not going all that smoothly. And I realized about halfway through, maybe 20 minutes in our meeting, you know, he's, because I'm saying, you know, we're just kind of figuring out how we can help you, that he's, he's basically saying, okay, Kevin, but what's the issue? What's the complaint? What's the criticism? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't have a complaint. I don't have a criticism. We're just really wanting to, to just try to figure out a practical way uh, that our church can help the people uh, who are, are on the police department to feel appreciated. And we figured out a way to do that, a practical way to help them, which was we actually uh, gave them some, uh, some rolling toolboxes for crime scene investigation. Anyway, it's just something that we could do just to say, hey, we care about you guys. You know, we're behind you. And uh, it, it's just amazing how much division is in our world today. It's not just government stuff either, although there's a lot of that. It's, you know, we want unity in organizations. Organizations kind of succeed or fail based on the unity of the people. We want unity in our marriages. I mean, we want unity all, all over the place. People cry out for unity, but it, it doesn't always happen. Here, here's what I'm talking about. Just in an organization, for example, have you ever gone to a store and maybe uh, you're checking out and something doesn't scan right. So the price that you thought scans higher than you thought it was. You know, so you say, excuse me, but I, the sign said this was 20% off or whatever. Now, the person you're talking to can react one of two ways. One way they can react is they can say, oh, oh great. Probably the department manager put up the wrong sign. Now I'm going to have to go talk to the store manager, and he's MIA, so it might take me a while to find him. Who knows where he's at? But I'll have to go check with him and find out what's going on. Hang on, I'll be back in a few minutes. And so pretty soon come back. Yeah, you're right. Uh, this item was on sale. You know, figures, they don't tell us anything. You know, we're the last to know. It's a wonder I can even do my job here. And you can have that same exact conversation could go this way. Hey, you know, I thought this was, oh, hey, let me, sorry that happened. Let me double check with the manager because I know he wants you to get the best possible price you can on this item. I'll be right back. Same, same situation. One person is kind of throwing everybody under the bus, disunity, and one person's kind of got everybody's back. You know, that same thing, by the way, plays out in churches, too. Don't get me wrong. You know, 
All across the country, people are asking people about churches, just, just like it could happen here at Grace. It'd be like somebody coming up to you and say, hey, I'm thinking about coming to Grace. I've heard a lot of people talk. I know you go to Grace. You know, what do you think? Oh, well, Grace. Well, we've got three services, but when you pull into the parking lot, it's going to be a mess. You know, we actually have parking guys in the lot, but I don't know what they're doing. I mean, it's just, it's just a disaster. And then when you come in, you better load up on caffeine to have a chance of making it through Kevin's sermon and still be awake. And they say we have great music, and you know, but Jay never sings the songs that I like best. Oh, oh, Wednesdays, you have a teenager? Oh, watch out. On Wednesday nights, when you, it's, it's, it's like chaos. It looks like chaos in there. There's hundreds of teenagers running around. They have popcorn, you know, drinks, refreshment. It, it looks like a zoo in there. I don't know what the leaders are thinking. You know, and some of those, some of those kids look kind of rough. It's a wonder more kids don't get hurt. You can have that same conversation. Fortunately for us, those conversations usually go something more like this. Oh, you're thinking about grace? I love grace. I think you're going to love grace too. Hey, we have three services to make it more convenient for people in our community to come in, make room for people like you. And when you pull in, there's going to be a lot of cars, but we actually have guys that volunteer their time to stand out in the parking lot in all kinds of weather to help you find a convenient parking spot. Not only that, when you get in, we have free coffee, free iced tea for you. We have a team of volunteers that makes that happen every Sunday. And people love our music. It's great. But I happen to know Jay and his team, they put in a lot of time in order to provide music with excellence. Oh, Wednesday night? Oh, you're going to love it. Our church has sacrificially given the money in order to build a student center so we can more effectively reach teens. Here's what they do. At the beginning, they come in and the doors open early so there's time just for students to connect with each other, to get to know new people, make new friends, burn off some energy. But then they go into their respective classes, high school and middle school, where they get excellent music and they will hear a Bible message that's specifically relevant to their life. And a bunch of kids, their lives are being transformed. You hear the difference? You know, that's, that's kind of a unity issue, but there's something more subtle happening there that I want us to notice because... Paul not only tells us the importance of unity, and by the way, Paul's saying the most important place for unity, where unity should happen like no other, is in the local church of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, and I'm going to tell you, not only that you should have unity, Paul is going to give us the secret to having unity, because everybody wants unity, but rarely do we see it really functioning. Here's the deal. Lasting Real unity doesn't come from governments or organizations. Real lasting unity comes from Jesus Christ and should be the most evident in his church. So we're, we're in Philippians. We've now gotten to chapter 2. 
So I invite you to, to turn there and, and pick this up. And again, before we get here, I want to say one more thing. Unity is important, so important, that Jesus, during his ministry on earth, actually prays to the Father about the unity that we would have today. You don't believe me? Look it up. It's in John chapter 17. Jesus prays for the unity of the future church. And he says unity is important because he says in his prayer that he prays that we would be unified. Future churches, just like us here at Grace Community, that we would be unified, that the people outside the church would see so much unity from the people inside the church that that would bear witness as to who Jesus really is. Isn't that amazing? That's why it's important for us to have unity. So Philippians uh, chapter 2, and here are the specific practical instructions to make unity happen, and he's going to start with the secret to unity. Verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection, any affection and compassion... And let me just say this. He's kind of stringing these together. Don't let the if throw you here. It's kind of what I call a rhetorical if. This if could be translated, the way it's being used here by Paul, is he's saying, as much as this, as much as this is true, as much as this is true, as much as this is true, it'd be like saying, hey, as much as there's encouragement in Christ, as much as there's consolation of love, that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, hey, he's not questioning the truthfulness of this. He's laying it out so that we see, hey, if the, knowing this is true, check this out. And he gets to verse 2. He says, if all that, then, which is true, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Okay, now here's... Paul, he's the joyful guy, right? No matter what he's going through, he's in prison, he's singing praises. He's beaten all this stuff, and he, he's still joyful. And he says, yeah, I'm joyful. I've been telling you I'm joyful. But he says, make me even more joyful or make my joy complete. And basically, he says, by being unified. Because he, he spells that out for us. By being of the same mind, unity. Maintaining the same love, unified in that. United in spirit, intent on one purpose, united in purpose. You know, so he's just hammering it. Hey, make my joy complete by being unified. And now, because a lot of people want unity, a lot of people value unity. Now he's going to give us the secret as to how to make unity possible when we all want our own thing. So here's what's coming. This, right now, first point here, he's, he's going to tell us humility is the secret to unity. Right here, verse 3. Here's how you do it. Do nothing from selfish, I'm sorry, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. So this is it. He's saying, how do you do that? 
You do it through humility. And then he defines humility because we got some bad definitions of humility, kind of like a false humility. I keep saying that I'm really nothing when I really think I am and all this. He said, no, here's what humility is. And he spells it out for us in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard, key, one another as more important than yourselves. He's saying, you want true humility? The way you do that is you regard the other person as more important than yourself. And if that wasn't enough, he doubles down on this in the next verse. Verse 4. Have this at, I'm sorry, verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's how you have unity it's through humility and the way you have humility, and I don't care if we're talking any organization or marriage or anything else, the way you have unity is through humility and the way you have humility is by putting the other person's interests above your own selfish interests. Or let me rephrase that, above your own interests, period. Some people, well, my interests aren't selfish. My, yeah. Put the other person's interests ahead of your own interests, whatever they may be. That's what he's saying. That's the secret to unity, humility, and that's what humility is, and that's how humility plays out. Concern for others must precede our concern for ourselves. And I gotta tell you, when this happens in the local church, Disunity disappears. You know, at Grace, we want to be truly united in Christ. Now, this is countercultural because in our world, people value uh, or, or they don't value this kind of language. You know, in our world, uh, words like down, decrease, descend, downscale, uh, downsize, these words appear negative. In our culture, uh, they're kind of reserved for losers, you know, not what anybody wants. We pursue in our culture words like up, rise, promote, succeed, ascend. From our perspective, that's kind of the way to go. It's how we become important, how we acquire stuff, how we try to ascend to greatness. But Jesus has taught us something that's just the opposite of that. Jesus has taught us and shown us how to descend into greatness. And so the first thing we see is humility is the key. It's the secret to unity. And now Paul is going to give us an example of ultimate humility in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. And he starts that in the next verse, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this passage of Scripture is foundational theology for us to understand who Jesus is. It's the most radical descent in all the universe. What he's saying is Christ has descended to become man. And not only that, to service. We see the steps of his descent all through this passage. Who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's kind of an awkward translation, the word grasp. He's really saying Christ existed eternity as God, with God, equal to God in Trinity. But he didn't consider that something to be cling to, something to be retained. He let go of that in order to descend. And then it says, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond service. First, emptied himself. This, there's a word for that, this emptied, called kenosis. And so this passage is kind of the kenosis passage, a Greek term. Meaning he emptied himself and became human. Which, which kind of means he emptied himself. He voluntarily set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. I mean, he's still God, but somehow he limits himself voluntarily, and he becomes man, which is the next thing. Taking the form of a servant, he comes, he descends even further, he comes to serve us like a slave or a servant. And then not only that, made in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man. He takes the form of his own creation, and he humbles more by being obedient. He he not only humbles himself to be human, he then comes and he's obedient in his humanity, even to the point of death. Even to the point of death, and, and not only that, even one step lower than that, even death on the cross, on a cross, crucifixion. You know, we've been talking about how uh, Roman citizens had certain privileges. Well, Jesus wasn't a Roman citizen, but Roman citizens couldn't even be crucified. It was too horrible. And so Jesus descends so far, not just a man, but he humbles himself to be a servant, to be obedient, even to the point of death, and even death on the cross in that He voluntarily takes upon himself the worst death that we could come up with that's only reserved for foreigners or slaves. He did that to identify with us. But when you talk about a a theological concept like that, it's hard to kind of get that to sink in. The most radical descent, as I said, in all the universe. What, what a, it's like this. What if we had the ability through our will 
that we could become an earthworm. Should have brought one in. You know, an earthworm. That we, for the good of someone else, we could become an earthworm. That, that would be quite a descent, right? Not like a dog who you can call it and come, wags its table and interacts with you. An earthworm. Our descent from humanity to earthworm is nothing compared to Jesus' descent as infinite God to finite man. Do we understand that? The descent of Christ is infinite. Way more than any descent that we could even think of because we're finite descending to something else that's finite. This is what God has done for you. To show you that he loves you. And also Paul says to give us an example of what humility looks like. And that's exactly what, what he's done. Jesus descended that much in order to offer us salvation from the just and right penalty of all of our sin. Jesus, because he loves us in spite of our sin and rebellion against him, descended all that way to prove his love for you and then be able to invite you into relationship where your sins are paid for and will not be held against you. He kind of continues toward the end of that passage I read that every tongue, you know, it talks about every tongue confessing Jesus as Lord. This is not universalism. This is not that sometime after death everybody becomes a Christian. That doesn't happen. What he's teaching us is that ultimately every person will confess that Jesus is sovereign. Some people who were followers of Christ will do that joyfully, uh, joyfully exercising their faith, joyfully celebrating their faith, confessing Jesus as Lord. But even more people will do that uh, despairingly or even defiantly. Those who have spent a lifetime rejecting Christ do not change their mind. They acknowledge who he is, but they're stuck in their rejection and their defiance and their despair. And they spend an eternity separated from God forever as the just and right penalty for their sin. Because in their entire lifetime, they never turned to Christ. The only way that we could be forgiven. We only have this lifetime. That's, that's what Paul is telling us here about this. So we see we're talking about unity. Jesus and Paul say, says it's super important for the church. Jesus prays that it would be a reality in the future church. That's us. And then we see the secret to that unity, which is humility. We get the definition of humility, which is putting someone else's concerns ahead of our own. That's what humility is. And then we have this perfect example of humility in Jesus Christ who descends infinitely for our welfare. But now we're coming to the most important thing, I think, about unity. The most important thing to us as individuals. 
The most important thing about humility for us is that we humble ourselves before God. Because that is necessary for our salvation. It will actually happen in eternity one way or other. But if we do it during this life, we spend eternity with God. And if we don't do it during this life, we'll still humble ourselves. We'll just be doing it defiantly or despairingly. Woe is me. I live for the wrong thing. And here's how that plays out in the next passage, beginning in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's interesting, and this really should cause us to kind of perk up. He's writing the church in Philippi, a church where he knows those people. He's got relationships with many of them because he was there when they came to Christ. And he's telling them, work out your salvation. Now, he doesn't say work on your salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. We know that salvation cannot be earned in any way. So works are not at all a part of getting salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn God's merit, to make God obligated to us. There's no good deeds that we can do that cancels out one of our sins. The good things are things that, that's our default, supposed to be what we're supposed to do. So there's no merit to doing good as far as our salvation is concerned. No good deed can erase one sin. All of our good deeds combined cannot erase one sin against our creator. That's what the Bible's telling us, hammering to us, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've got to get that. Now, some people have a big problem with that. because, Because what we're saying is God's telling us That all of us, he's given us a freedom to love him back. But all of us as human beings have misused that freedom for our own selfish concerns. And we've rebelled against God to do our own thing. And we have sinned against God by doing things that he said not to do. And and so, and most of us can admit that part. But what sticks in people's throats sometimes is we're saying that, the things that we've done in our rebellion against God as we violated his commandments, as, as we've done things God's told us not to do, lie, steal, covet, lust, all these things that we do that he's told us not to do, that they actually deserve the, the just punishment for that is an eternity separated from a righteous and holy God. And that's, that's what people have a hard time with. Hold it. You can't tell me that God would say that my sins, the things that I've done wrong, are so bad that it deserves an eternity in hell. That's what I'm telling you, and that's what God's telling you, more importantly. Me, Kevin Pinkerton, the sins that I've committed against God justly and rightly 
it, I deserve to spend an eternity completely separated from a righteous and holy God. Not only that, I deserve an eternity separated from God in torment. That's the right thing that should happen. That would be justice. And we're all in that boat, every one of us. It's the whole point of the Bible. And that's why the descent of Christ happened. God loves us so much, he created us. He gives us this will to to love him back that we've all misused. And even in our sin and our rebellion, God still loves you and me. And in his love for us, he makes a way that we can be saved from the right penalty of our sin without violating his justice. And that is that Jesus Christ, eternal son, would descend all the way from heaven, creator and sustainer of the universe, to wrap himself in humanity, to be a servant, be obedient, even to the point of death, even a torturous death on the cross. Think about it. As creator and sustainer, that means when Christ was being crucified, it's not like he didn't feel pain. He was fully man and fully God, temporarily setting aside his divine, independent use of his divine attributes. So he's human and God in one. And when Roman soldiers are pounding spikes in his hands, he feels that. But it's not just that he feels it. He created the soldier and the person and the arm that's holding the hammer, that's pounding the nail through his wrist. It's not just that he created that arm. He actively sustains us constantly. He's the sustainer of the universe. He quits sustaining. The universe ceases to exist as far as the way we know it. He act, that means that he not only created those arms that were crucifying him, that he sustained them to give them the energy and the strength to be able to drive the nail into his hand. And he did that intentionally. He did that for me, personally, and he did that for you, personally. Whether you've come to admit that or not, it's true. God loves you, and he's proven his love for you by dying a torturous death to save you from the right penalty of your personal sin. That's what God's telling us. That's the whole point of this passage. Wants us to have unity. The secret is to, is to be humble. And humility is putting others ahead of yourself. We have the perfect example of that through Jesus, who descended more than anyone can descend to become human and die for us. 
But the most important, about, most important thing about humility is that we would come to a point during our lifetime, because that's the only chance we have to humble ourselves before God. Acknowledge who we are, sinners deserving separation, and who he is, a just and right judge. And so the most important question this morning is, have you done that? That's not all. Notice how, did you catch how at the end of that passage he says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, we work out our salvation. That means, Paul's saying, it shows up in our life. If you think you're a Christian, but, but all you do is come to church on Sunday and kind of be nice to people in general, that, that's not how Scripture defines Christianity. He's saying, working out your salvation, he's saying, both to will and to work. He's saying, first of all, God initiates our salvation. He did it all to make it possible. Then he beckons us. He offers, he invites us to come to him and receive his free forgiveness. And he's the one that even gives us the ability to respond that way. But not only that, when we do respond and we do become a believer, which is all to his credit... Then he will plant in us a desire to follow him, and that desire will actually work out in our lives. So our lives will be characterized by a want to, by a desire to follow God, but not only that, that it'll actually show up in our lives. Because he'll give us the, the desire, but he'll also give us the strength through the Holy Spirit, to actually do what he wants us to do. Now, none of us do that perfectly all the time, not saying that, but our lives as believers will be characterized by a desire to follow God, and we will, it'll be characterized by us living our life in such a way where we are doing what we believe and we know that God wants us to do. And if you don't have that, the desire to follow Christ that actually shows up in your life Monday through Friday. And you work out your salvation. Saying true salvation shows up. You can't truly be a Christian but, but never do anything for Christ. I don't mean good things that we do so we'll be respected by our family and you know we'll be model citizens and respected in our community, that's rubbish. I'm talking about showing up in your life where you're doing something because you know God wants you to do it even though you would rather not. That's what it means to be a believer. That's what it means Christianity showing up in our life where we look at the end of the day and realize there's a string of things that we did that, that we don't know where that came from. It's not my desire to do those things. God wants me to do it. So I'm doing it, and I have a desire to follow him. If, you, if you're not experiencing that, Paul's telling us we need to be careful about our salvation, and, and, and we need to be looking back to make sure there was a time that where we gave our life to Christ or not. Because we don't live the Christian life in a vacuum. It shows up. 
boots on the ground, it, it shows up in our life. And so to, before we wrap, because that's the most important decision you could ever make, we, we want to extend and, and prompt you that if you have any doubts, that you'd make that decision in your life. Even though you might be a good person and a church person, maybe you've been baptized. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about coming to Christ. Let's bow our heads. Not my intention to manipulate anyone. God knows I don't want to talk anybody out of their salvation. I'm just using the words of Paul to say, is Christianity showing up in your life where you have a desire to do things that God wants you to do? You have a desire to follow him and that you actually accomplish some of those things because he gives you the strength to do it. Not, just, not things you want to do, things that you know God wants you to do. That's what I'm asking. And if not... Maybe you've thought you're a Christian, but you've never really given your life to him. The good news is, is we have a fix for all that. God always beckons us to come. The invitation is always open. All we have to do is respond in faith. Faith specifically in Jesus. And when I say faith in Jesus, I mean that you believe Jesus is who he said he is. And that you trust that what he did on the cross completely pays for all your lifetime of sin. And therefore, a just God can declare you righteous even though you don't deserve it. Faith in Christ means believing in who he is and trusting in what he did. So, if you're unsure about that, I'd just like to, to implore you to cry out to God and make that a reality in your life. And, and maybe you can express that to God this way. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You can follow silently. Something like this. Father God in heaven, I understand that, that you've created me and that I have rebelled against you. And that's called sin. I've done things that are wrong. That you tell us that are wrong. And I don't deserve anything good from you but you love me anyway and so much that Jesus radically descended to actually become human and die in my place and pay my penalty for sin. Infinite God dying on a cross in a moment of time for me. And based on on what Christ has done, who he is and what he's done for me, I know that, that as I respond in faith and trust in Christ that, that you will save me. And God, I ask you to come into my life through your spirit. Give me the desire to, to want to follow you and the strength to carry that out so that my life will be characterized as one who desires to follow you and does follow you. 
And God, thanks for loving me. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like our heads to be remain bowed just a moment. And before we dismiss, I, I just like to take our spiritual temperature once in a while. We like to pray for people who've made decisions. And maybe you've come to church before. Maybe it's even a little embarrassing. I don't know. But if you've you prayed that prayer, you trusted in Christ, and as far as you know, maybe that's the first time that you've done this sincerely, understanding everything about what it means to be a believer um, or to become saved. I'd like just to kind of make eye contact with me while everyone's head's bowed and just raise your hand so I can see you. My intention's not to embarrass you. Thank you. But just so I can pray for you, thanks, thanks, thank you. I see, thank you. I see you back there and back there. Thanks, right here. I see you, thanks. I see you. Thank you. See you, sir, thanks. Anyone else? What's up? Kind of make eye contact with me. Put it back down. I see you way back there. Thank you. Anyone else? I see you right up here. Thanks. Anyone else? I see you. Thanks. Let's stand for prayer. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. And Father, we pray for, for these who have, uh, in sincerity of heart, has responded to you. And Father, we understand that all of us here, we are all just sinners that have been separated, that you have reconciled us back through your son. And Father, we pray for anyone else here that, that maybe didn't take that step but, but realized they needed to, Lord, that you continue to, that your spirit would work on their heart. And Father, for, for those of us who are believers, either we've just made that, that commitment with a full understanding of what it is or maybe we've been Christians for, for decades. Lord, you'd help us that, that in our lives uh, we would have the desire to follow you and that it would show up in the actions that our lives would be characterized by following you every day. God, thanks for love, uh, even in our failures. Thanks for loving us and always being there, never forsaking us, never leaving us. That salvation is a one-time gift forever. And we cannot lose it. And God, we thank you for that. God, help us to have the unity that you want us to have and make that a reality through humility as we interact with each other at grace, that we would be examples uh, to our community. And Lord, that we would, uh, through our people, permeate our society and point them to you. Because we know that, that you are the hope of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Have a great day. See you next Sunday as we continue in Philippians.